You're listening to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond White. This episode, The China Syndrome. All through my childhood, the Cold War provided the story frame for global affairs. Good capitalists versus evil commies. USA versus Russia. Of course, this was simplistic. There were bad guys all over the place. But from the Berlin Wall to Vietnam, that was how the story was framed. Then, after the fall of the USSR, two things happened. First, religious-based terrorism took center stage. We had a new evil villain. And second, trade globalization was supposed to create a new harmonic world. This turned out to be naive. Today, yet another global dynamic is emerging. Democracy is under threat even in places like the United States. Authoritarian dictators use religion, culture, and nationalism to grab power. Economically, nations everywhere are looking to become more self-reliant. Climate change looms over everything, and China is on the rise. If we want to plan for Canada's security, the challenge is to understand what threats we will face in the decades ahead, and China is one in particular. It's the old Wayne Gretzky line about going where the puck will be, not where it is. There's a helpful tool for all this analysis. You've heard the saying, demography is destiny. If we look at the world through the lens of demography, some interesting predictions come into focus. The world today has over 7 billion people. It's expected to hit 9 billion by 2050 and 10 billion by 2100. China and India each have about 1.4 billion people. Canada at 38 million is very small. Hidden within these big numbers, however, several very contradictory demographic trends are underway. In poor countries, especially in Africa, a demographic time bomb is ticking. 90% of global population growth in the coming decades will be in the poorest areas of the poorest countries. Spiraling population, endemic poverty, and a host of social and economic problems are building towards catastrophe. Then there's the certainty of climate chaos. The developing world, in short, faces a world of hurt. Their countries can't build schools, health care, or other services fast enough to keep pace with population growth. Climate disaster is a constant reality. If developing countries are lucky, their leaders try to do a good job. Too often, their politicians act more like crime bosses. Nigeria, in particular, is on a path to total breakdown. Its population will pass that of India by the end of this century. Development efforts just can't keep pace, but it's not alone. Many sub-Saharan countries already face a dire humanitarian crisis. In Somalia, Niger, Congo, and much of the Arab world, we can see a humanitarian ecological nightmare in slow motion. Climate change brings droughts, and a growing population can't survive on shrinking resources. Refugee camps proliferate, filled with disease, despair, and frustration. They're breeding grounds for terrorists. Masses of innocents try to migrate to safety and hope, only to find more misery. The brutal truth is that this is not going to change. 
it's going to get worse. Millions will die. Development assistance could slowly turn the tide, but greed, stupidity, religion, and other obstacles get in the way. One of the few things that could help free family planning is blocked by radical American religious fundamentalists. Fortunately, other parts of the world are better set up for a sustainable economy and a stable population. In these places, governments still struggle to pay for services like health and education, but around the world the quality of life rises when women control the number of children they can have. In India, family planning is encouraged and the population is leveling off. Throughout Asia, the population is peaking as women control their own bodies. Even in Latin America, the population will peak around mid-century. Most developed countries now have an actual decline in population. We find this in North America, Europe, Japan, even in Russia and Brazil. In fact, Russia has kidnapped large numbers of Ukrainian children in part to address their plummeting birth rate. All of which brings me to the unique case of China. There, demographics dictate destiny. China is powerful and ambitious. Their version of communism delivers the basics of life at the expense of human rights. Drawing on their pride in thousands of years of civilization, the Chinese see themselves as the center of the earth. China, led by leader for life Xi Jinping, seeks to replace the United States as the dominant global power. But two things hold him back. First, the shrinking, aging population. Second, to win, China must follow a grand strategy that avoids a cataclysmic war. We have actually this in common. Now, China's great civilization was founded on bureaucracy. The communists simply reinvented the bureaucratic tradition since it's essential to have when you run a huge country. Bureaucracies are by nature risk averse. This happily also helps us to avoid that direct confrontation. Meanwhile, under Qi, every child, regardless of language, culture, or ethnicity, is forced to speak Mandarin and to learn a communist-curated version of history. Over 90% of Chinese are ethnically Han, but hundreds of millions of Chinese are not. Under Qi, patriotic duty insists on loyalty to the idea of one China that is at the center of all civilization. Incidentally, this applies to Chinese outside of China, including in Canada, and we can see this happening in real time. But demographic destiny is already getting in the way of China's plan for global domination, and here's why. When Mao Zedong took over in 1949, China had a spiraling peasant population. At first, his communist rule was a total disaster. Between 1959 and 1961, some 30 million Chinese starved to death. Population growth was seen to be part of the problem, so the communists imposed a one-child policy. It had horrifying results. Since Chinese families valued sons more than daughters, they aborted girls. But in one sense, it worked. The Chinese population has already peaked. This has had unintended consequences. The one-child policy took place in a wave of industrialization. 
hundreds of millions of people left their traditional farm villages and moved to the factory jobs. To house them, China built massive cities. These peasants became the factory workers who sent cheap goods to the West. Their economy boomed. Western industries got hollowed out, but things were cheaper to buy. Over time, the Chinese workers and their children became more educated and moved into the middle class. Some had savings. Encouraged by the state, many invested their life savings in their new home apartments. Then came COVID. Unnerved and knowing that health systems in China were weak, Qi put entire megacities into quarantine. In a deadly pandemic, the crowded elderly population could quickly turn against him, so factories and ports were shut down. As the Chinese economy tanked, construction slowed to a crawl. Soon the real estate market began to melt down. All those who had invested their life savings in a new home watched their hopes die as the economic bubble burst. Qi needed to distract the masses. The simple answer was to raise tensions with Taiwan and unite his people in face of the threat he had created. Looking ahead, this should give us a good idea of what to expect from China in the future. The pressure of demographics is unrelenting. To meet domestic demand, China will need food, water, and other resources much from abroad. China must provide services for the aging population or face domestic chaos. Actual war would backfire, as it has for Russia. So, militarily, China will threaten and distract. But the one thing, the one resource they don't have and can't get is more workers. We can expect China to follow a very aggressive foreign policy designed to promote nationalism. It's an age-old strategy. We can expect chest-beating threats against Taiwan. We can anticipate China to encourage quietly North Korean missile testing. It's mostly bluster. Xi is not crazy, unlike Putin or Trump. But he will pounce on weakness or opportunity. This is the playbook for a grand strategy. It exemplifies the indirect approach that military theorist Liddell Hart described. China hopes to panic Western democracies, keeping us flanked and distracted. She will scream at the Western allies. They're threatening to China, thereby demanding unity at home. Meanwhile, he'll do his real work elsewhere. He'll take what is undefended, like Hong Kong, but he'll stop short of a self-destructive war. He will not let North Korea launch a nuclear war. He will not invade a strong Taiwan or attack a well-defended Japan. The flanking maneuver from which we are distracted is that China is buying control of natural resources everywhere it can, even in Canada. The Chinese are building infrastructure to control global economies. They already control most global shipping. They'll use cheap foreign labor abroad but will not accept massive immigration. They'll slowly build power and influence step by step. To illustrate, one example of an indirect attack involves 11 massive dams blocking the Mekong River before it leaves China to flow into Myanmar, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. The Mekong is the lifeblood of Indochina. By taking water for hydro and irrigation for China, China can slowly put a chokehold on the region without firing a shot. As economies there suffer, 
they will have no choice but to bend the knee to China. So how should Canada and our allies respond to China's grand plan? If China, under Xi, is famously playing a long game, we should too. We do it through a two-pronged counter-strategy. First, we must not be distracted or panicked. The simple reality is that war between Canada and China is not imminent. But countries under threat, like Japan or Taiwan, need defensive systems that give China pause. Canada is too far away to help in a crisis, but we can focus our defense spending so it supports our Asian friends. The second prong is to outflank China economically and politically. Leadership is needed to save the oceans from destructive fishing fleets. There's a need for alternative transportation like hydrogen airships to bypass the Belt and Road Initiative. It's essential that democracies invest in developing countries, building free markets based on rule of law and regenerating natural ecosystems. China cannot be trusted. Political hostages will be used as pawns. Trade treaties will be broken. Cyber warfare will be ongoing. That's why the long-term goal for Canada should be to delay confrontation and to allow China's internal pressures to bring change from within. We must recognize how hard it is for China to rule its massive aging population with such limited natural resources. We want China to have a place of pride in the global community, to feel safe, to have the resources they need. Healthy countries, after all, are less dangerous. What's clear is that globalization in recent decades has failed to reduce hostilities. Yes, globalization must eventually be tried again, but it'll be 2.0. It will be founded on alliances among trusted democracies while expanding membership over time. At the same time, Canada can rebuild relationships with adversaries like China around shared interests. Adversaries need not be enemies. From sports to the arts to climate stability and protected oceans, those interests do exist. Diplomacy is essential. This grand strategy can guide little Canada as we respond to big China. The desire for human rights inside China will never be totally smothered. That's human nature. We have to trust that over generations, the desire for freedom inside China will find a path. More critical, we must watch as demographic trends reshape China and other countries. They, along with climate and natural catastrophes, will determine in large part how the affairs of the world play out. In all this, Canada must be prepared to play the long game. It's a new game. History can offer insights. The one thing we know for certain is that everything is changing rapidly and we have to adapt. You've been listening to Canada Reimagined. I'm Patrick Esmond White. I'd like to thank Tom Evans for the artwork, Tom Plant for the music, and Harbinger Media for its support for Canadian independent podcasters like myself. Tune in again next week and take care.